Judy, thanks very much Ray, for the long reading, and I'm sorry that it was so long. <laughs> well, good to see you all. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I was going to talk to you today about um, a person who was a very important person in the history of the church, and that has contributed to a lot of our thinking and the way we understand uh, Christianity. That's Augustine. So his name was Aurelius Augustinus Hipponensis, also known as St. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. He was the last of the foundational church fathers and the forerunner of medieval theology, as well as of Catholic and Protestant thinking. As you'll see, Augustine's understanding of God was and free will and sin was not based on simple meditation, but on a life full of ups and downs, full of pain, suffering, joy, and various different moments. So I'll start by telling you a little bit about the story of Augustine and the key moments of his life and how that might have contributed to shape his thinking. I'll then describe some of the theological issues that Augustine sought to address and we'll finish by cons considering some of the implications for us and the way we live as Christians today. So let's get moving. Uh, Augustine was born uh, in 354 AD in Targaste, uh, in the western province of the Roman Empire. Fagest was a small village located in what is now Algeria. His father was a local official employed by the Roman Empire. Uh, he followed the traditional pagan rituals of the land and, and those of Rome itself. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian and her unwavering faith seems to have played an important role in the conversion of her husband and ultimately of Augustine. In fact, in today, today's world, Monica would most likely be described as a tiger mother. Uh, she knew exactly what Augustine should be doing and how he should be living his life. Uh, he was a very bright boy, and she knew that. And uh, they had clear plans for him and uh, for a, a, a career full of uh, glory. So they sent him to Madara, a, a town nearby, to study rhetoric which was a career that was supposed to open doors for him in, in government or in a prestigious field somewhere. But uh, his teenage years uh, were driven by the desire to love and to be loved. He felt compelled to impress his peers. Uh, his friends used to boast about his sexual exploits. And Augustine felt inadequate and ashamed that uh, he couldn't boast about the same things. In his youth, he saw that as something that he had to address. It was a failure that he couldn't live with. He also described an episode in his young life uh, when he and some friends stole some fruit for no other reason than the simple pleasure of stealing itself, just the thrill of it that they felt it was compelling and attractive. But then Augustine's father died and financial difficulties forced Augustine to return home. Fortunately for Augustine, it was not long before um, a benefactor came forward and, and offered to support him in further studies and, and to, for him to move to Carthage, the cultural center of the Roman Western province of Africa. Carthage is now a suburb in Tunis, uh, in Tunisia. Augustine was 17 years old when he arrived at the big city. He did not neglect his studies, but he also made sure that he had enough time to explore the pleasures of the city. It was not long before Augustine found himself a woman to live with him in a de facto relationship. 
she bore him a son, whom they called Adiodatus, which ironically means given by God. Rhetoric, the discipline that Augustine was studying, sought to teach, teach people how to speak and write elegantly. Persuasion rather than truth was the focus of rhetoric. And the love of rhetoric was so widespread at the time that uh, you may recall that the Apostle Paul himself was criticized for not having been a master uh, in that particular art. And among the many ancient works that uh, the students of rhetoric had to read were those of Cicero, the famous Roman orator. In addition to being a master of language, Cicero was a philosopher. And he argued that uh, discourse and style themselves were not sufficient. One should, should also seek the truth. But where could the ultimate truth be found? This led Augustine in his 20s to explore several religions and philosophical beliefs that were being preached around him at the time. But these ideas seemed to enable to offer answers to his questions about what is good and right, and how can one know the truth? By then, Augustine was no longer a student, but he had become a teacher of rhetoric in Carthage. And he grew increasingly upset and, and strained with the, with the students who didn't seem to be too bothered about the important questions of life. So this led him to move to Rome, uh, although his time there was short-lived because of financial troubles. As a result, some of his friends uh, persuaded him to consider moving to Milan when there was a, a need for a professor of rhetoric. He arrived at Milan at the age of 30. And he started thinking about the Bible again at around that time. Yes, he had been exposed to the Bible, but he had big questions about that too. How could a book that had seemed to be so crudely written and it was full of stories of deception, betrayal and violence be held as the word of God? So by then, Augustine, Augustine's mother had joined him in Milan and encouraged him to go and listen to the sermons of Ambrose, a very well-regarded um, speaker of the city, who was also a Christian. So to begin with, Augustine, as a, as a professor of rhetoric, was more, more interested in how Ambrose spoke than what Ambrose said. But with time, Augustine realized that he was listening to Ambrose more as a seeker and less as a professional. He became interested in what he was talking about and what he was saying about God. Ambrose interpreted the Bible in a totally different way and that made scripture appear much more sophisticated and appealing that, than uh, Augustine had ever recognized. So Augustine's difficulties with the Bible were starting to dissolve. But to his alarm, he realized that Christianity demanded not only his intellectual understanding, but a surrendering of his life. And around this time, he prayed to God, give me chastity and continence, but not too soon. In other words, he wanted to be able to control his desires and lust, but not just yet. A battle raged within Augustine. He, he was intellectually attracted to the idea of Christianity and what Christ had done. But he was reluctant to relinquish the control of his own life and that which gave him autonomy and pleasure. 
At around this time, Augustine's mother persuaded him to part ways with his lover of several years so that she could try to organize a proper marriage for him. Augustine's concubine, wh whose name he never disclosed, was told to leave. But within a couple of weeks, Augustine had, had found himself a new woman to help him placate the pain of the woman he had just lost. Then several factors seem to, events seem to converge together, come together. A close friend and confidant of Augustine had become addicted to the blood, violence, and death of the Roman games. Augustine was disgusted by this, and he was able to show his friend that there was nothing beautiful or honorable about this destruction that was taking place in the Roman games. But as he counseled his friend, it dawned on him that he too had allowed himself to become addicted to things that were entirely self-serving and destructive. The proud pursuit of human wisdom, the recognition and validation of peers, and sex. And Augustine despaired uh, at his own weakness, and one day in his inner turmoil, he came out running out of his house, um, tormented by the question, how long, how long will I have to live like this? Tomorrow will I change? Why not now? So in his desperation, he heard the voice of a, a child who was playing nearby shout, take it up and read, take it up and read. Augustine had been given a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans. He picked it up and his eyes landed on chapter 13, which reads, let us behave decently as in daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery not in dissension or, in, or jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So that was the moment uh, in which Augustine relented. He realized that truth, the truth that he had been searching for could not be found in worldly pleasures or human philosophy, but in the intimacy of a trusting relationship with Jesus. He realized that he had to allow himself to be clothed with Christ. Monica, Augustine's mother, was obviously delighted with the news. Both Augustine and his son were baptized by Ambrose. They then decided to return to Tasgate in North Africa. But on the way back, Monica died. Augustine was so overcome with grief that it took him another three months to resume his trip back home. When he finally got to Tasgate, he sold the properties he had inherited, gave some of the money to the poor, and settled in a small village with some friends and his son, Adiodatus, who also died a few months later. And it was in the midst of these high-ranging losses that Augustine realized that he had finally found peace. And it was around this time that he wrote his first Christian works. His intellectual abilities didn't go unnoticed, nor did his devotion. And the then Bishop of Hippo uh, persuaded him to accept ordination in 391. Four years later, he was made Bishop of Hippo, a position that he held until he died in 430 AD. And it was during this time as Bishop of Hippo 
uh, that Augustine wrote the book's Confessions, Seat of God, on the Trinity, and many other theological works, in addition to hundreds of letters uh, and, and, um, and sermons. So let's now consider how Augustine might have contributed to our understanding of Christianity. This will be a, a rather brief and focused summary because his contribution was very broad and wide. So Augustine became a Christian uh, only a few decades after the Council of Nicaea at the time we talked about. The council which produced the Nicene Creed was critical to addressing the nature of God and in particular the nature of Jesus. Was G Jesus the firstborn of creation but a creature nonetheless or was he God? This controversy became known as the Arian heresy. And although the issue had been settled by 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, the doctrine of the Trinity had not yet been fully articulated until then. So Augustine argued that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And that this Trinity is not three gods, but one God. And that so great is the quality in this trinity that not only the Father is nothing greater than the Son regarding divinity, but neither are the Father or the Son anything greater than the Spirit in that divinity. And neither are each person of the trinity singly, whichever of the three might be anything less than the entire trinity itself. How can that be? And the answer according to Augustine is, love. As it is stated in uh, 1 John 4, God is love. The Trinity is love. And by using a deductive method, he went on to demonstrate the profound implications of these statements. Augustine maintained that love can only exist in a relational context. Hence, if God is love, there must be someone or something for God to love. As God in his eternal perfection lacked nothing, God's love can only be directed at God himself, which means that God has awareness of something that's perfectly lovely within himself. God the Son, the perfect image of God the Father. But as God, God's love is perfect, it means that it follows naturally that the love that God has for the Son must be reciprocated. Because love that's not reciprocated cannot be perfect. Therefore, the Son must love the Father perfectly. And again, as only God is perfect and lacks nothing, this perfect love that flows between the Father and the Son and binds them together can only be God himself. God the Spirit. So Augustine proceeds to explain that one cannot love what one does not know. So that perfectly, perfect love implies perfect knowledge. He reasoned that for something to be noble, it is necessary that this something gives away knowledge. Because something that does not impart knowledge cannot be known. This led him to conclude that the persons of the Trinity know one another perfectly and give away to each other in love, knowledge of themselves, 
of one another willingly and completely. They are three persons, but they are one indistinguishable essence that is all love and all knowing. One truly amazing triune God. Augustine also played a central role in articulating the theological basis for many of the church sacraments. There was intense debate at the time as to whether baptisms and ordinations performed by priests that subsequently reneged their allegiance to Christ were to be considered valid or not. Augustine argued persuasively that the Spirit through the church, rather than through a particular priest, is the one who validates the sacraments. This means that ordinations, baptisms, weddings, and so on, are valid independent of the person of the priest, but they must take place within the context of the church family, which is the bride of Christ, the conduit of God's expression to the world. But perhaps the most prominent controversy that shaped Augustine's theology is Pelagianism, named after the British, British priest Pelagius. In his confessions, Augustine had declared in prayer to God, give what you command and command what you will. Pelagius rejected these ideas and its implications and it implied that everything, everything depends on God with no room left for human effort or participation. Pelagius argued that humans were born free and could freely choose what to do what was right and, or that which was wrong. If people were not free to choose, then, according to Pelagius, sin would be excusable because the sinner would have had no other option but to sin. But Augustine remembered the time when he had wanted to become a Christian. At the same time, he both wanted and did not want to do what he knew he should do. And Augustine's point was this. The power of sin is such that it takes hold of our will, of our wants, so that we are no longer really free to choose. Sin becomes the guiding master of the will, the ultimate driving force of our desires so that our choices are always under its persistent influence. For those of you who have enjoyed reading the book or watching the movie The Lord of the Rings, sin is like the irresistible power of the ring that inevitably shapes the desires, will, and actions of those involved who get in touch with it. Even the most pure, noble, brave, and innocent of them all, Frodo, could not ultimately resist its pull. So does that mean that free will is an illusion? No, not at all. We are all free to choose from many alternatives every day. But sin constrains our choices. If I could use an analogy from physics, sin is like a black hole whose immense gravitational pull is irresistible to all it comes in contact with. A black hole eventually disorganizes deconstructs and destroys all that was once majestic, beautiful, and radiant. It all progressively becomes a dark nothingness. But if that is true, how can one ever hope to escape from the grasp of sin? According to Augustine, this is only possible 
through grace, through God's intervention. It's only by grace that our will is awakened to the only meaningful decision that we are called to make, to accept or reject God's salvation in Jesus through the power of the Spirit. There is nothing we can do to escape from the grasp of sin except to welcome the gift of the amazed triune God who is love. So Augustine's doctrine of grace has obvious implications for the way we understand the irresistibility of God's will and predestination, but that's probably a discussion for another day. So let's come back to Perth 2021 and think how Augustine's theology might have implications for us today. Perhaps the first point to highlight is that Augustine was very much like us, a flawed character. Please don't get me wrong. He was and is an incredibly inspirational person. But he knew temptation. And he often embraced sin. And delighted in the blinding seduction of its power. And so do we. Augustine was saved uh, by the grace of God. Not because he was smart, charming, good looking. Or because he was a gifted philosopher and communicator. Grace was an unmerited gift, yet an irresistible nudge that eventually brought down the barriers and set him free from the illusion that he was free. Augustine realized then that he needed rescuing, Jesus' rescuing. And the challenge for us is the same. Are we here because, like Augustine, we have heard God's call, but who is the master of our will? How do we spend our time? Where do we spend our money? What are the things that we pursue to give our lives meaning? If our answers to these questions are not focused on bringing somehow glory to God, then we most likely are still resisting God's grace. And perhaps the temptations of this world still have a hold on us. It was hard for Augustine, and it is hard for us. And it's probably fair to say that most of us are work in progress, by God's grace. But I would encourage you not to lose sight of one important point that was very clear to Augustine. There is no such a thing as a half-Christian. We are either all in with the saving grace of Jesus, or we are not in at all. We cannot serve two masters. And this brings me to my second point, fear. Augustine feared losing control of his life. And his fear was so intense that he had to dampen his emotions by seeking assurance of his own intellectual powers, by basking the adulation of friends and his sex. And his ultimate fear was this not being loved. His book, Confessions, is an extended prayer, an honest and at times painful plea for forgiveness. The hidden sins laid bare out in the open, the rebellion and mistrust in the goodness of God acknowledged. And it was in this moment of vulnerability that Augustine recognized God's voice 
and understood that what real love is. And, and this understanding was not simply an intellectual overworking or an outworking of his emotions, but, but an experience of his whole being. He realized that he was known by God. Known in every little detail. And God loved him in Christ, through the Spirit, just as he was. Augustine understood that he had been made in the image of God. An image that's capable of reflecting the amazing characteristics of God's Trinitarian love. A love that transforms those who are in Christ. Those who accept God's saving grace through the Spirit. So Augustine was eventually set free to truly love those around him, not in fear or lust, but in the image of the triune God. Like Augustine, we long to find peace in true love because we recognize that such love cannot be found in sex, money, power, or fame. But are we ready to relent? And I would like to finish by adding one final implication of Augustine's thought. The triune God is a relational God. And his grace finds its best expression in the church, the bride of Christ. The Christian life is not an individual journey, but a life that finds its fullest expression when lived in the context of the Christian family. Augustine saw the church as the conduit of God's grace, and for this reason, the apostolic church had the ultimate authority to offer the sacraments. And the church was also the place where those who were lost could find God's grace and a reflection of a God's love being expressed to the surrounding suffering world through the actions of his image bearers, the body of believers. And this is also a challenge for us today. Do we come to church to serve or to be served? Is this church a conduit of God's grace? So let's pray that St. Barnabas will always be a place where Christ is preached, where grace abounds, and the love of the triune God is true and effective in all we do.